0: Hi folks, I'm Mark Fallows and this is the Impossible Network podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast player. And please leave a rating and a review because it helps more people find us. If you want to find out more of what we get up to or suggest who we interview next, follow us on Instagram at The Impossible Network or visit
1: theimpossiblenetwork.com. Okay, let's get started. When you bring up issues of money, it's fascinating how often... You hear the same phrases. Don't mess with innovation. We can't hinder innovation. And my answer is why is more money <laughs> often synonymous with innovation? Why isn't increasing human well-being or environmental well-being or caregiving or loving others well why is that not the top priority? And where people are like hey as long as we make enough money to pay the bills. And of course people should be rewarded for value that they bring. Or if you invest in a company, you know, you're a shareholder, great, that they should be rewarded. But exponential growth, and going back to your thing about three mm-hmm. things, there's only one, I say this a lot when I've talked recently, the actual five words that will end humanity, did we hit our numbers? Massachusetts born, actor, author, musician,
0: an expert on the ethics of artificial intelligence is this week's guest, John C. Havens. John is currently the Executive Director for the IEEE Global Initiative on the Ethics of Autonomous and Intelligent Systems. Over the past three years, the initiative has produced Ethically Aligned Design, a free Creative Commons book over 250 pages written by 600 global experts created to ensure that autonomous and intelligent systems honour human rights and end user values while prioritising human well-being and ecological sustainability. John is also the author of Artificial Intelligence, Embracing Humanity to Maximize Machines. He's a frequent contributor to Mashable and The Guardian and a former EVP of a top-ten PR firm. He's also founder of a non-profit called the Happathon Project and a former professional actor with over 15 years' experience. If you want to follow John, you can find him on Twitter at John C. Havens. I should point out that John's views are his own on this show and don't necessarily represent the formal positions of the IEEE. Like last week, this is a two-parter. In part two, we'll dive deep into the ethics of AI and John's vision into a more sustainable future society. Can we jump back just to understand where the arc went from, like I say, the stage and screen to you ending up becoming an expert and passionate in the areas of technology and well-being? Because, you know, if you look to your LinkedIn, you probably go back and say, how on earth did that intersection happen?
1: Well, I was just saying to a friend before I came here at lunch, I was in PR and that jump happened because after acting, I did a lot of, um, actors roles where I would write scripts. I was often hired as like the funny guy and for industrial films, a lot of industrial films that were forced to watch in HR, like Bob, don't talk to Susan that way and don't touch her. <laughs> Those horrible things, like a lot of times I'd be hired and they were pretty good, um, Comedically, I would end up making jokes that the, the people would say, well, put that in the script. And so I got paid to write scripts. And then I got into writing business articles. I landed a job with about.com. I was their first guide to podcasting. So I learned and that was in like 2004 or 5. So I learned how to do business writing, kind of how-to writing. And then a friend offered me a, a job in PR in New York. I said, I don't know PR. And they said, that's OK. They don't know social media. And I went from VP to EVP in about a year and a half. And then when I left PR, a lot of it was because my dad had passed away. And so I think the internal jump happened because I missed and still really miss my dad. And mm-hmm. um, his work was the manifestation of how do you show people they have worth. Yeah. So I fell in love with positive psychology, which is an mm-hmm. empirical science. It's the extension of psychoanalysis according to my, you know, uh, Martin Seligman and the people, yeah. Barbara Fredrickson, who created it. But if you get to know the science of positive psychology, it's very powerful, and it very much resonates with a lot of religious and similar non-religious traditions. Mindfulness, and, and mindfulness people tend to focus a lot on, but the harder things are things like altruism, because mm-hmm. like your friend you mentioned with that beautiful story, it, it demands actions, yeah. gratitude. Gratitude's very hard because we are trained to think we only have worth once we do something versus gratitude is saying where you are right now today, stop, pause, who or what do you have? Maybe it's the air you breathe, maybe it's the food you eat. Anyway, so the jump then at that point when I lost my dad was like, I love technology, I'm a geek, I know how to write business stuff, I've done biz dev for years, I love bringing people together, I've run major events, thousand people came to one and there were 200 speakers so organizing large groups of people and connecting like you were saying Mm -hmm. you like to do and all these different skill sets kind of synthesize into one core thing which is if I can let people know that they have worth and if I can encourage them to identify their values so that amidst all these beautiful technologies they can still introspectively say I know this is why I'm here and I have worth that's really the core of Mm -hmm. what is also now in one sense, quite strangely, because I Tripoli, being an engineering-driven organization, I'm not an engineer, I am able to do all these different, a lot of my skills intersect um, to help drive drive this work, which I'm, again, really honored to do.
0: It's really interesting. It couldn't have happened. Timing's everything. Because 20 years ago, wouldn't have been an issue. We weren't facing the onset of AI and robotics and the question over our, our future humanity and, and our a sense of worth as as individuals as frail you hu- know human beings. So it it is fascinating. The other thing that makes me think about it is just uh, we interviewed Michael Ventura who's written a book called Applied Empathy, which is a lovely book and it's mm. worth worth getting your hands on. You know, also title. connect him. He's got a, a design agency in the West Village called Sub Rosa. But there is a, a strong element of empathy in, in what you're talking about to be able to understand and connect those different constituent part those different stakeholders. There needs to be someone that's a connector that can understand the imperatives and the, the needs and the, the challenges that they face to embrace the changes that have to happen to allow us to move forward without <laughs> um, encountering some form of significant existential risk. Because you mentioned you, you've written three books and I've got quite a few questions just around the, the book you wrote, Artificial Intelligence. So maybe we could just just run through them and just see where the conversation goes. Great. First thing, though, I there was a bit in your book where you referenced a, an author who'd written a book, something robot, and said there's three in the first paragraph or the first page. He talks about there's three possible scenarios for humanity with robots: one about them worshiping us, one where we are controlled, and one where they make us extinct. Because I've read this and I heard this on a number of occasions. These three scenarios that doesn't bode well for humanity and it it's more of a sort of a dystopian
1: vision of where our future might lie rise of the robots is the rise book. of the robots that's what yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. um i think the reason i love his work so much he's very researched he's very pragmatic and i think a lot of is it okay to swear yeah there's no bullshit mm-hmm. which is the thing that, that i now i will say because it's been a few years and since i've written the book Any scenario that I'm going to say with the word robots, just replace humans Mm -hmm. doing it, right? Because there's this misconception, not from you, but you know, that this sort of, uh, until robots might attain consciousness, which is a different conversation and something that right now today, I do not personally believe that robots have consciousness or algorithms have consciousness. And that's largely based on the academic uh, and expert community that I work with. Um, I also think why it's dangerous to focus too much on when that might happen is that we avoid the here and the now. Mm. And so to those the points of uh, those those three things um, mostly I think the big question we need to ask ourselves is are the metrics of success for how humans deem societal success ones that we want to stick with because then whether it's robots or algorithms they're simply manifestations of the decisions that we're either overtly making or de facto letting them happen. Mm -hmm. And I bring up that because a lot of my work, both at IEEE and for the past number of years, has been to say, what are the global metrics of success where everyone can point to, this is something we all agree is success. It's not just money, right, because we all need money, Um, but um, GDP in terms of gross domestic product I think people think that things just sort of appeared, <laughs> you know, <laughs> economics happened and they're sort of, that's it. Um, and what's fascinating in conversations like this one we're having, which is awesome, by the way, is how often, albeit global, all around the world, like I just came back from China a couple of weeks ago, I go to Egypt in a couple of weeks. So it's not just in the West, but you can talk about, like, you know, so many conversations are when will robots maybe have consciousness, which again, I try to avoid largely because they're a distraction from the here and now. Um, They're important. But anyway, um, when you bring up issues of money, it's fascinating how often you hear the same phrases. Don't mess with innovation. We can't hinder innovation. And my answer is, why is more money (laughs) often synonymous with innovation? Why isn't increasing human well-being or environmental well-being or caregiving or loving others well, why is that not the top priority and where people are like, hey, as long as we make enough money to pay the bills, and of course, people should be rewarded for value that they bring. Or if you invest in a company, you know, you're a shareholder, great that they should be rewarded. But exponential growth, and going back to your thing about mm-hmm. three things, there's only one, I say this a lot when I've talked recently the actual five words that will end humanity did we hit our numbers? <laughs> yeah. Those are the five words, because every quarter, Where there's a legal obligation for any humans to say whatever glorious work we're doing, the main metric or the only metric of success for how we make our decisions, not just growth or profit, but exponential growth, Mm -hmm. matching that with these amazing tools that by definition are autonomous and intelligent that can increase speed, that can replicate skills, you're matching what what we used to call in PR land a KPI, Key Performance Indicator, Mm -hmm, right? With tools that can maximize speed and growth. That's when we're screwed, because people are saying, look, all these great conversations, and this is what Martin talks about a lot in Rise of the Robots, kind of is the new bullshit thing, which is not anger against business or government, but is to say, until we change this one metric that's as exponential growth is what we think societal progress is, everyone's gonna be held to it, and all these conversations about jobs and stuff, they're still important and relevant, but at the end of the day, what people actually are going to be doing is replacing all jobs and replacing all human skills because that's the one thing that they're held accountable to. And it's so short-termist. Oh, yeah. It's funny that
0: makes me think of that Hemingway quote from, I can't remember what the, the book was. It's um, all things happen slowly, then all at once. Things happen slowly, then all at once. And it is that case that I think where so many people haven't got their eye on what's happening, the exponential sort of Acceleration of these technologies and we are looking quarter by quarter looking for opportunity in a, what's becoming a technological ar- artificial intelligence arm race with no, as you say, no direction, no code of ethics, no sort of uh, detente it <laughs> to, to um, nuclear days in the 60s and 70s when obviously there was another arms race. And it's potentially
1: catastrof-
0: catastrophic for us.
1: Well, yeah, and let me just say this, you know, Moore's law. People talk a lot about Moore's Law, which yeah. is this idea that things increase exponentially. I just had this thought now, so I often will say that at least in the last couple of years I'll say similar things, but this is new, so tell me if this makes sense, which is Moore's Law also applies to things like depression. Moore's Law applies <laughs> to things like the the negative ramifications to the environment, right? Meaning, not in the, it's not apples to apples, and when people are like, it's a different theorem. and like, I get it, but the point is is that like depression, suicide, from a mental health status, these have been blaring sirens globally for the past two or three years, Mm -hmm. according to the World Health Organization. This is not like, oh, it's a drag. It's a pandemic. Oh, no. And in terms of physical cost, in terms of hard ledger, look at that, what that costs, right? Some people make money from those things, but the point is is that that cost, and I'm a parent, so also when it comes to things like uh, suicide, um, I don't know how we could, uh, I don't want to be judgmental. I'm not talking about euthanasia when someone is elderly or sick. I mean, if our youth globally mm. um, or anybody of any age, a, a genuine, not just a choice, but a sort of like kind of regular decision would be this is in my wheelbox. box. I don't, I'm, I'm being very judgmental. I'm certainly just speaking for myself. I don't know how to live with that. Meaning I think it's easy to speak about kind of in a, let's be cool, and if someone wanted to do that, that's their decision, I agree. I'm a parent, I know people who've lost kids to suicide. That is not where you come from. You live the rest of your life thinking, I failed. Mm. I didn't love them well. Um, so to not get negative, to, put, to bring it positive, just because I want to make sure yeah. to be positive, the opportunity for the technology, right? Because one thing I want to be careful is, and this isn't what you were saying, but I don't want to frame, AI is not the issue. Mm. The code is not the issue. It's why are we building this stuff and what is success? If success is look at all these great companies that are going to IPO, it's not that anyone there is a, quote, negative actor or I mean, unless they're building, you know, like, whatever. <laughs> to kill yeah. people. It is to say, as a society, we are still living by, um, you know, a statistical thing that Simon Kuznets created in the late 40s at the Bretton Woods Conference. By the way, I'm going next week is the 75th anniversary of Bretton Woods. Most people don't know about it, but that's where they galvanized things like the World Bank and the IGF and and funding, where those were the decisions at that point that said this is what societal success is, and they gave it a number and a formula. Anyway, so the wonderful opportunity now is to say, what about increasing human and ecological well-being in unison, in tandem, if those can be the success factors for any AI that we build um, over the need to prioritize exponential growth. That is the way to go forward.
0: Mm -hmm. I have heard you talk and I've read about your perspectives on things like, I think you call it the gap, which is gratitude, altruism, and purpose and talk about that we need to move beyond wealth and productivity to look at purpose. Because you talked a lot about the importance of Kennedy talking about going beyond GDP. And it's funny, I spend a lot of time in the work I do with this global NGO talking about the importance of purpose. And I think what we need to create is not GDP, but GPP, which is gross personal purpose, Mm. that we all identify, you know, taking your acronym of GAP, of gratitude, altruism, and purpose, we need to have a measure for that. Now, maybe this is a nice way to segue into one of the things that, I mean, there's so many layers to this and we, sort of, we could spend hours talking about this, but let's, let's pull it apart a little bit. One of the things that I, is a personal passion, both good and bad, is data. Coming from an advertising background where we collect always were driven by collecting data on consumers to try and get them to change their behavior, to learn more about them, to be more insightful, to do personalized communication because we all know that you're only one purchase away from happiness and triggering that dopamine. But you know that's why I got out of advertising, just thinking there's got to be a better way than just continuing to create conspicuous consumption. But we don't recognize as consumers the power of our data. And we've got Google and Facebook that are monetizing it like you can never imagine. There's just nothing on in history has ever been like it. And I had a conversation with um, an angel investor, number one angel investor, a few weeks ago, um, Fabrice Grinda. And he's an investor in marketplace. And I said, don't you think there's an, an opportunity to create a, a data marketplace for consumers where we control our data, where it sits on a personal cloud, where we can determine which brands engage with us which ones that we share the information with and we become the recipients of the money and he was like nah it's not going to happen i don't know about that i feel there's an opportunity and i'd love your perspective on and whether that's something that you have ever have conversations about
1: oh yeah Uh, two books ago my book was called hacking happiness why your personal data counts and how tracking it can change the world And with your background in advertising and marketing and my background in PR, what we know is that the insights that come from tracking someone's data, a lot of times gives us more insights into their lives than they may know about themselves. And that's not to sound devious. It just means if you don't know what you've eaten for the past six months combined with your Twitter sentiment and whatever else, and you come back to somebody and say, you know, every time you tweet that nasty stuff, you also have frequently reported that you've just had sugar you know that the sugar is probably making you angry and maybe you shouldn't tweet at three o'clock because mm-hmm. I have data here, right? So something that's a, maybe not the best example, but the point is is that we, insights, right? The insights from data are, are so critical and when they're mainly used to get us to buy stuff, it's such a shame to think about that that's, it's not a bad, bad thing, you know, unless it's manipulative and all that. But the short answer is we have to, have to provide, and I just had lunch about this, and I mentioned this earlier today, I was doing an interview for Wired on this. We're actually creating a standard for IEEE, and I'm, I'm pitching it now, because by the way, it's it's free to join the standards working group. You don't have to be a member of IEEE, great if you wanna join. But it's a, a working group focused on creating an algorithmic level terms and conditions for every human person. Now, all the things you just said, is it hard? Yes, do consumers care about their data? Some do, some don't. Long story short is we are tracked from the outside in and that's happening from government and business and whether it's quote good or bad it's contextual and all that type of stuff but the point there is that we have to trust that whatever government or business is tracking us that they're going to follow gdpr or whatever laws we mm-hmm. hope for we're now in a place where like i often i've done a lot of research in augmented and augmented in virtual reality we still sort of think the digital world is external Right, we all know, like, well, my phone can track me, but you and I are talking with headsets and stuff, but we're in a physical room in New York. I've often been thinking Matrix or Mis- um, Minority Reportish for years. That once augmented in virtual reality come into play, it simply just means that then all the stuff that's already happening with our data, we will see it and be immersed in it in new ways, that will become very visual and visceral. So I say all this to say the need, not the potential opportunity, is. When I say create a terms and conditions it means every service that we are asked to click to accept their terms and conditions we also need to be able to say well these are my terms and conditions otherwise there is no actual parity between individuals and the externalities that track them Mm. um this gets geeky and I'm I talked about this this morning and I talked for like 40 minutes and I'm trying to get more sound bitey but in one sense like a dating app where you enter in hundreds of pieces of data about yourself, what you're really saying is these are my values, right? Mm -hmm. I am Jewish, I am gay, whatever else, and that identifies who a partner might be. This is to say, what are your values to identify how your data, when it's tracked, you simply are signaling back who you are. It's not just about privacy, meaning I don't want my data to be used for bad stuff. It's about signaling, this is who I am. So as an example, I I talked about this, I think, in Caroline's thing. The phrase often comes up, what do you have to hide with privacy? Yeah. My answer back is, what is ours to reveal? And I bring that up to say, picture this situation. A young person is gay, right? They know they're gay. It is up to them to come out, right? And please forgive my wild ignorance being straight cisgender if I'm saying something wrong. But my friends, I was an actor, I still am for, you know, for, for years. So I have many friends who are gay. How they explained it to me, uh, my friend Peter comes to mind, is it's obviously incredibly intimate. It's their business. And if there's technologies that could, you know, point at them and say, hey, based on your physical facial structure and Mm. whatever else, you're gay. And someone else kind of steals their thunder, which is not even remotely the right way to say it, that I would assume would be devastating. And it's not their place. And more importantly, what if the tech is wrong? The person gets to say, no, I'm gay. And I bring this up because if we don't have a place uh, we're stemming from our identity where we can prove I'm the only John Havens in the world. And then I project, these are how I would like, these are my terms and conditions. We will lose agency pretty quickly. Meaning, picture this, I'll try to make this simpler. Our kids, young people, and all of us put on headsets to go into virtual reality. And we first go in and we put on the headset for a couple hours. I still know I'm John. I take it off because I go to the bathroom or eat a sandwich, fine. Most people in immersive games today, there's 1.2 billion active gamers around the world. 50, 60, 70 hours a week are spent in-game. Think about now wearing augmented reality contact lenses or being in virtual reality. What we call physical reality now will in many ways for most of us be the place we spend the least amount of time.
0: And think about the anxiety these, these gamers are gonna feel when they come into the real world.
1: Yes, and think about the anxiety that we should be, we should, uh, meaning to your person who's like, I don't think whatever's gonna happen. I don't see any answer, and this is for the past seven years thinking about this daily, unless we have a technological means to state who we are in data, and then unless our rights, our terms and conditions, we're part of stating who that is, and there's both the outside-in tracking and the inside-out, then all the decisions about our data will always be made about us, mm. period. Where we are right now, at least in the States, there's a lot of data I can't access. And then when you hear things like, well, we should put our data into a commons, and you know, let's cure cancer and put data over here. In theory, of course, yes, anything to cure cancer, awesome. But unless there's a, um, a choiceful technical way like through a blockchain or smart contracts where you know which data you're sharing and how yeah there is the certain the agenda of saying let me guilt you into sharing even more of your data so i can use it for my agenda versus um uh, i can tell you about a company i work for that i think did this the right way they set a precedent this simply just has to happen so we have the standard a guy named doc Searles. oh yeah project vrm yeah so doc is the ideological you know leader for many of us in this and he's got his book Intention Economy on this. The Standard... I mean it's a classic book. Yeah and he's a friend and he's the person that actually inspired that standards working group. So this is happening. It's happening around the world with a lot of people saying let's not talk anymore about how hard this is going to be. And one thing also I tell people is like with a human right, the right to agency for your data, which I believe it's a human right, other human rights just because people may say I don't think this human right is important. Does that mean you wouldn't protect it? Does that mean you wouldn't fight for it? The answer is no. And certainly also just because the economic system exists, people may say, I don't care about my data. I cannot look at my kids who are 16 and 14. I cannot look at young people and say to them, you know what, it was hard to think about how you'd be able to share your data in virtual and augmented reality. It was tough and a lot of people, mainly from Silicon Valley, we're saying that consumers didn't care about their data. But the data I read from Pew Internet, Gallup, all these other places, um, say that actually young people do care about their data. Mm-hmm. And more importantly, I'm not interested in telling people how they should care about their data, but I will fight tooth and nail that they will be able to think about it and share it as we move forward in the future. So these things, I feel like any, any of the litany of things people will say, which are fair these things can be hacked, these things will be hard. The answer is sure, but guess what? The past 10 years, as you would know, Mm. all the external tracking from the outside in, the technology has been there for 10 years. You talk about loss
0: of agency. If you think about even today, while wearable tech and the internet of things is nowhere near as all pervasive as it will become, we are outsourcing our agency, our decision-making, our who we date, what we eat, the steps we take. Now, a lot of this is positive but a lot of it is also quite dark and black mirrorish. And I don't think, I think there is a, a movement, a, a, a certainly within youth, a, a growing awareness of the, the risks and the darker side of what potentially could happen if it goes beyond that tipping point and there's no way back. So I think the work that you're doing is, is incredible to actually set those standards. So that sort of is the data element. What about the, the aspect of, we talk about, we talk about human rights, and we talked you talked about values why are value, values so important in respect to artificial intelligence and the and the the, the evolution of technology
1: sure i think when i first got in the space it's easy to hear the word ethics and think morals mm-hmm. right the word yeah, morals yeah absolutely and you think about let's judge the people making it let's judge the companies making it where the real understanding about a lot of the work we do um, which is based on amazing leaders like Batya Friedman with value sensitive design, or dear friend, uh, Sarah Speakerman, uh, she wrote her book ethical IT innovation. Um, and whether you call it participant design or any methodology where you're asking not, let's talk about the people making the tech, but you say, what are the end users? What are their values? And what's really tricky is when you build something, bias, by the way, is not necessarily evil, right? It's oftentimes a synonym for negative. Synonym for negative where bias is simply the paradigm of who you are. Mm-hmm. Recognizing it is like disclosing when you're a journalist, you know, hey, I got paid by this person to write this article, right? <clears throat> the disclosure, and I'll, I'll make another point about mm-hmm. disclosure in a second. Anyway, but you, would, you don't know how your device, how your AI system is going to be interpreted by the end user unless you ask the end user, or your methodologies say, how will the end users use this? And a reason there's a lot of, you know, concern about like the, uh, you know, young men creating all the tech and all that stuff, which is valid, Mm -hmm. is when you say things like, our intentions are good, and I think this would be cool, or this technology will do all this great stuff, all those things may be true. But I can't think of the right analogy, but it's like telling someone who you want to fall in love with, you're going to fall in love with me because of these reasons. Mm-hmm. And let's go. You're in love with me. <laughs> and the answer is, well, wow, you sound great, but I'm right. And in one sense for, I'll push that analogy, it may not work. You know, devices, especially we haven't talked about yet, but voice assistants are pervasive in millions, if not billions of phones. These are already altering our consciousness. Phones and homes. Phones and homes. <clears throat> Deeply sort of without kind of, in one sense, asking permission. And I don't want to make it sound negative per se, except to say the sort of, uh, not guinea pig, because that makes it negative, but the sense of the uh, techno-utopian kind of, this will help people, and then the market directive of get it out, without sort of fully understanding how it's going to affect human agency and stuff. The the other opportunity, which is what we're saying now, and and again, I want to be clear not to demonize how that's happened, but now is a great time to say, because these voices, literal voices, are speaking to us in different accents. Mm. And it's great to say, like, well, a lot of them are women and that's servile. That's a great question to ask about. Like, why is Siri female? And But did you see that, that someone developed the first gender-neutral voice? Which is great. Which is fantastic, It's yeah. It's great, but um, that's a great example of, cool, let's be choiceful because the people picking up the device or the people integrating with an algorithm It has to be about them Mm. or else empathy, understanding others, kindness, you were saying, or even media, right? Marshall McLuhan, all that stuff. One to many. We know that what we're building is right for you. When the answer is you may have a good guess. And then also people like Steve jobs and Apple, there's times where you won't necessarily say we did all this surveying. We just think this is going to transform the world. And here it is. Right. Mm. I get that, you know, But when you look in like our our book, Ethically Aligned Design, one of my, I love all the chapters, but one of my favorite chapters is embedding values into design. When you hear that phrase, there's a misconception that actual values will be instantiated in code or a physical morphology of a machine. Not at all. What it means is when you put a device in the presence of humans, how will their values be affected by that device? So a quick example is in a hospital. um, If you have a care robot, A lot of times people are just thinking, well, I'm going to build this care robot and sell it to the hospital so the doctors can have a fast, predictive, whatever. Mm. That's only one or maybe two stakeholders, the hospital and the doctor. Then there's the nurses, which is palliative care, and then there's the patients, and then there's the patients' families. That whole ecosystem is a whole series of values where once you know, for instance, when patients are in a room, the robot should not speak at a certain level or else the robot may be you know like this patient has 14 days left to live and the the patients are (laughs) there and this becomes a market opportunity without all these questions of you know uh, let's get into utilitarianism versus the tunnel problem and all that stuff which drives me batshit sometimes because it's making it very vague Mm -hmm. versus saying what are you building who's going to use it really take the time to ask before you build it not just for harm you're identifying innovation Hey, we're going to have the only robot that is sensitive to all these stakeholders. We'll sell it that way. The world's most sensitive care robot, right? And when it walks in a room, it takes a couple extra seconds, measures vocal sentiment. There are 10 people here. Hi, are there family members here? That question is asked. Yeah, I'm so-and-so's father. Okay, doctor, I'll come back later. Boom, right? How many levels of values now? I'm being very simplistic, and the chapter goes into a lot more specifics on that. You're You're simply being kind of an emotional intelligent not the robot the designer is
0: doing that i mean when you hear people talk about um, artificial intelligence and the advance of technology there's the the, the utopian the dystopian and the realists and people that say, look, there's going to be a jobless society. We're going to need some form of universal basic income. But there are others that say, no, there's going to be plenty. Just like the last industrial revolution, there'll be new jobs created. I find it interesting what you're describing there. And given that my uh, partner in the podcast, uh, one of my partners in the podcast, Elaine, is a UX designer. It feels like there's going to be a new, uh, the imperative to create a new type of designer. One that is trained in ethics and values this way to be able to design the products of the future. My only worry and concern, and maybe you can lay my fears, is that how will we move at the speed to create these courses, to create this this new type of training, to keep up with the pace of the development of these technologies in these companies, whether they be in China, in Germany, in the UK, or in Silicon Valley? Because it, the need is now. So how are you addressing that in either in your personal mission or maybe in your role as a, a representative of IEEE and the people you're working with?
1: there's a couple levels um i had the deep pleasure of meeting one of my heroes uh, joey ito three or four years ago at an aspen conference on artificial intelligence and at that event uh, i was representing ieee talking about our work and i said a lot of the same things i'm saying here i talked about well-being and the need to think about economics beyond just the technology and it's not about the ai or the engineers which i will say a lot meaning of course it's about them but it really is about the systemic aspect of what is society say is valuable and if it's mainly exponential growth then we shouldn't be pointing fingers at anybody Mm -hmm. we should just be saying as a society all of us look around the room right and that person's from policy that person's a tech developer that person's the citizen if we're all kind of saying everyone nod their head are we cool with societal progress is about exponential growth yeah yeah then the future that we make I think me John that's utterly dystopian because it's also not working Mm-hmm. Where I say not working, meaning that's where we are today. That is the ultimate still primary goal for everyone when the doors close and every quarter happens. You and I have this great conversation. How will things change mm-hmm. at a systemic level? I bring up Joey because MIT Media Lab, which he runs, they're doing amazing work on what's called extended reality. And uh, meeting him, we we talked then to this amazing guy named Constantinos Karahalios who's the managing director of the IEEE Standards Association. And we created something called the Council on Extended Intelligence. And we have three parts to the vision there. I'm executive director of that work as well as executive director of work at IEEE. But the the hat with extended reality, that work, we talk about, there's three parts to it. One is extended reality. I'll mention that in a second. Second is data sovereignty, what we kind of already covered. The third is well-being um, in terms of increasing human and ecological well-being as a marker, a goal of success for AI as well as society in general. But I bring up extended reality because um, things like universal basic income, all that type of stuff, uh, long story short, I bring up the GDP again. The short answer is if we don't change the metrics of success, I don't see any motivation for businesses at some point to not replace every human job and skill. I don't see any motivation. I think, uh, and I've had long discussions with friends of mine on this. Do I think new jobs will be created? Sure but do I think at some point the doors are going to close and the, answer, the question's going to come up, hey, that new job we created, emotional intelligence, yada, yada, some other cool title, is there a way we can automate that to save money or make more money because i got to hit my numbers and I'm being pressured? When but then- you can't hit numbers
0: when, there's, <clears throat> when you're having a, a never-dwindling workforce of people that have no income to then buy the products that you're creating. It, it, there, 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 it comes a zero-sum game and a race to the bottom.
1: That's that's my hope. But so far, you know, uh, so speaking for myself here, not any other organization, Mm, but I lived in New York City in 2008, where the the mortgage crisis that happened, no one was punished. So I'm not here to be punitive. But the answer is also if things can happen and people know they can do them. I'm a parent, you know, like part of loving your child, not spanking them or anything, but is redirecting and saying, if you do that again, there's going to be consequences. So far, there aren't. Um, there's a lot of systemic things that I bring this up to say in a great example there are brands who I have so much respect for um, like Danone uh, in Europe which makes and uh, yogurt in the yeah. States and their corporate social responsibility they've actually changed their legal structure yeah. to demonstrate a B Corp, a B Corp mm. which what they're showing is and this comes from a Harvard Business Review mindset from 2011 Michael, I always forget his last name, um, but this idea of social innovation, right? Long-term sustainability beyond a quarterly success model for a business comes from recognizing the sort of triple bottom line and saying, to your point earlier, if those people aren't there to buy our stuff in five or 10 or 15 years, or they're dwindling for their ability to buy, this becomes much more Mm short-termist. It's next year or the year after that we won't have anyone to buy our stuff. So then part of maintaining the fact that you'll have those consumers, those people to buy your stuff is making sure that there are jobs, et cetera, et cetera. However, again, from a separate standpoint, it's these first brands, these first governments that are standing up together saying, we have to do this together because, you know, however many, if there's 50 of those organizations and three of them do the Danone thing and the others are still like, you know, saying, maybe even supporting it, like, that sounds like a great idea, but then they still close the doors and go short-term exponential growth, then we're still screwed. And the hope here is that the very positive kind of changing of a paradigm level of, uh, of these economic and other systems is sort of a sense of, for me, especially with the planet and with, with young people and mental health, yeah. it's like looking at suffering, all that empathy, looking at whatever else, and also just kind of moving past the, I'm not trying to put down an IPO or companies doing awesome stuff and getting rewarded. But that sort of exponential thing means, of course, the 6% will continue to get the majority of the wealth, the Mm -hmm. benefits. And that means, can we just stop pretending that we actually do want to help other people if the the doors close and the legal pressures that companies feel because it's not fair by the way to only point at companies and say you're the bad guys not at all same thing with the engineers this is a societal thing to say i totally agree do we want to change this stuff or not
0: yeah i think the term i read that you use was general progress indicators we need to look at what is societal progress i'm going to pause there because one i'm conscious of time and uh record a (laughs) battery (laughs) <laughs> um, and get into the quick fire questions. And maybe what we can do um, another time is uh, circle back and talk about some other questions because there's a ton that we haven't covered off that I'd love to get into. Um, but let's see how we get through the quick fire questions. Yeah, I'd, okay?
1: I'd be honored to come back. This yeah. has been a wonderful conversation. But also
0: what I want to do with the podcast for series two, we're going to try and do some group ones, get two or three people in a room that can get into a really interesting conversation around some of these issues.
1: Hey, can I say one thing before we get to yeah. the fast fires? just to give a positive vision yeah. just ruminate on people driven with purpose like you mentioned uh-huh. all the great products that are being created the beautiful technology right ai is doing so many glorious things i want to be crystal clear again the technology is not the issue mm. but there's so many beautiful things it's doing curing cancer helping soldiers return from uh, ptsd or yeah. ptsd increasing empathy but where think about a world where you know when you're presented with a cool brand the question is, can this brand increase your sense of purpose? Mm-hmm. And then you're going to buy it. You're still going to buy it. because it's, but, but, the, but the answer is not the short-term, like, consumer kind of <laughs> dopamine hit. Alone, it's going to be purpose. And then think about where if our urgency for boardrooms every quarter was a CEO said, listen, if we want to hit our financial numbers, I won't be able to also hit numbers to improve the environment mm-hmm. or help kids, young people struggling with mental health or whatever else. Our triple bottom line, in other words, is this okay if this quarter we relax the fiscal and focus on the purpose? And think about boardrooms, because of course they're already there, the enlightened boardrooms that are going to say, yeah, that's great. And think about a world, and and then where some people may not want to do that, and I'm not interested in stick over carrot, but is to say, outside of political ideologies and all that stuff, is there suffering? Is the planet suffering and are people Mm -hmm. suffering? And think of all the amazing, wonderful, purpose-driven things that can happen when the number one thing is not to focus on exponential growth of fiscal and productivity, but it's about purpose. That world is one that I have been actively trying to build for the past number of years of my life and the work at IEEE they've been doing for years to be a part of that is such an honor and there's so many people like yourself like we can imagine all these beautiful things we can imagine that machines might become conscious and we can go to mars why is it so hard to imagine that we can love other people Mm. and improve the planet and ourselves and have worth why is it hard it's because it's really hard to do but we can do it and it's being built well everyone i meet at the moment And although we
0: are maybe in a bit of a bubble in New York City, but everyone I meet is talking about purpose and everyone cares about it. and Everyone wants to see it happen. So all it's going to take is one organization or one innovation that will be that flip. And then you'll suddenly see someone that's not hitting the numbers, but their share price is going up. And they're being rewarded and their sales are going up because they're creating products that are embedded with purpose. There's a great um, new platform coming out called called A-World, and I'll tell you about it later, created by this wonderful Italian innovator I met. And he's doing some wonderful stuff around the SDGs and creating purpose within the companies that are embedded in the platform, affiliate revenue for users and for Impact credits for people that are on the platform as well. It's a really lovely virtuous
1: circle of purpose. But I'll no, I'd love talk to about talk that later. about that. Yeah. And then share price. I'd love it if the conversation didn't end with share price went up. Yeah, because who cares? No, end of the day, again, it's short termers.
0: <laughs> Let's do the quick fire questions. I'm going to ask you a question that I heard you ra- raise in your book. Um, what's the question no one asks you but you wish they would? Oh yeah, <laughs> I forget that I used that. Um, Maybe that's we should ask that later.
1: Do the other ones first and come back to that. Okay, okay. yeah. What principles do you stand by? Uh, curiosity. I think the moment you lose curiosity, arrogance comes in and it's easy to think you know too much. Um, kindness. At the end of the day, I think anything of wisdom comes from a place of humility and kindness. Okay. Where do you go to discover new ideas? I watch... Every kind of dystopian TV show and utopian one, the black mirrors, all that stuff, um, I read as much as I can and I often, I really make an effort to read non-AI oriented novels. And I love documentaries. I think documentaries and non-fiction books, if, I always try to have at least one fiction, one non-fiction book with with some kind of angle that I haven't thought of before.
0: Okay. What hard choices have you had to make that might be tough at the time but turned out to be the right decision?
1: Uh. Coming to New York as a young actor was very hard. I left, my mom had just won a battle with cancer. My dad had had an open heart surgery. I left my house in Needham and came to New York with no money, all that stuff. So that was, that was a hard year. Where do you go when you need space to think? Uh, nature, I think uh, that's one thing I realize about the visceral aspect of nature. And Westerners, we tend to think that nature is outside. Whereas the Eastern traditions and the indigenous traditions, I'm starting to learn more about that I'm so fond of. We are part of and one with nature. It's not the sort of, you know, kind of funky Western, like let's put on yoga pants judgment about it. It is a recognition that the only way we'll be sustained is to recognize how central nature is to who we are. Very interesting. You should check out Anahita
0: Mogadan, Moghadan, mm. one of our other guests, who's doing this practice called contemplative uh, psychology. Um, yeah. I think it is. You I mean, get awesome brings, guests. brings in together all <laughs> with the neuroscience, uh, Western uh, psychology, and Eastern traditions as well, and merges them all together in our Wonderful. training practice. She's very interesting. Who are your biggest influencers?
1: Uh, Jesus. <laughs> but uh, that, I mean, the scriptural, yeah. you know, actual scripture um, um I play blues music so BB King of course Eric Clapton Stevie Ray Vaughan at a very core level of who I am that music speaks to me at a very deep level it's also the Mississippi Delta Blues players Sonny Terry Brownie McGee playing harmonica Sonny Boy Williamson Jay Giles band their early stuff their mm-hmm. harmonica player magic dick um, then um, uh, people like Joey Ito this guy I mentioned Constantino's you know I think Advice I got years ago was work hard to find mentors mm-hmm. at every age of your life because if you peop- if you find people who you say I want to be like that person, you never lose the opportunity to learn and grow. That's nice. I'm gonna to jump to the impossible question. Uh, what would your advice be to someone
0: that's just about to graduate or go to study that's being to- that's got a dream, a goal, or a grand ambition, but it's been told forget it, that's impossible?
1: Uh, follow your heart. You know, follow your bliss. To quote. I'm blanking on his name, but Conrad, mm-hmm. um uh, blanking on his name, but, um, you know, someone told me, you can't be successful as an actor, and I had a 15-year career where I got in all three unions, I made a living wage, um, I met my wife, I got the formative grounding to do the work I'm doing now, so, uh, you know, a lot of times I think people, people's intentions, usually, like you say, like, well, their intentions are good. I don't think that's the case. I think the answer has to be if you aren't if you're built to do something and it brings you purpose, pursue it with everything you have. That's lovely. Who's made you reevaluate yourself? Oh, That's a good question. I have to give a lot of credit to my wife, uh, Stacy. She is my best friend for multiple reasons. One of them being that she lives with my crap and will <laughs> challenge me on it. My daughter is similar. She is uh, really helped me with aspects not just of young people but LGBT. Uh, lgbtq issues plus <laughs> yeah plus yeah. Uh, meaning where it's tough when you're 50 sometimes mm-hmm. you like i just turned 50 so you start to realize the words that i say i'm biased and it's being interpreted by others and i've hurt them mm-hmm. and by the way i'm not saying dumb shit i'm just saying <laughs> i'm saying she is a young person and um you know can has taught me a great deal mm-hmm.
0: No, I'm with you on that. I, there's, we can get into the whole area of sort of language that culture is culturally acceptable now that maybe wasn't even 10 years ago. It's a really bit of a minefield at times, um, particularly being Scottish and coming from the <laughs> advertising background where, let's say, cultural sensitivities are not really the, the, the main area of training focus. There's a haggis joke in here somewhere. Yeah, actually. I'm sure it's coming. Um, what's your go-to karaoke song? <laughs>
1: um, it's It's... It's, I would say it's blues, because if I know it's in the right key, I can play harmonica to it. Um, I love um, a lot of like the Frank Sinatra era stuff. Um, and then my dad, um, as I mentioned, had this beautiful, tender voice. So, um, Misty was my parents' song. So, a lot of times in karaoke, I'll crank up like the kind of classic 40, 50s crooner yeah. type tunes. Yeah, want to be in the audience. What book do you want us to offer the three listeners that
0: submit the best comment in the comment section? or given on our reviews? Uh, I'm sorry, meaning what book would I recommend? What bu- book, apart from yours, obviously, what book do you think we should give away
1: to readers that's important for them to read? Um, in the AI ethics space, the one that I always recommend is Shannon Valor's book, um, Technology and the Virtues. Mm-hmm. When you get to know um, ethical traditions, like the Western traditions tend to be somewhat individualistic, Eastern is more communal, virtue ethics is an actual kind of embodiment of a lot of the golden rule do unto others be purposeful Mm. and she does an amazing uh analysis of virtue ethics traditions in light of ai and she's also now working um i forget what she does at google and she used to run a major ethics center she's one of the smartest people in the space in that book technology and the virtues i should probably ask her to get some kind of percentage because i always recommend right well that's one who should we interview next oh man there's so many people oh but you know the first person that comes to mind um twain uh, her first name is twain like mark twain last mm-hmm. name is lou uh, she's from china i met her at my buddy uh, tim's uh, conference uh, tim uh, runs this wonderful conference called the house of beautiful business in lisbon um and tim uh, uh i got to speak there last year and twain was at the conference she's from china and she is incredibly smart like so uber geeky smart The first time I heard her speak, I I thought like she was somewhat frenetic, which I can be, which is not a bad thing. I was just like, what is she saying? And then what I realized is on Twitter, she's very adamant, which is really important to hear, that a lot of Western traditions for ethics that most of the Western world bases stuff on comes from the Greeks, which is great. Mm -hmm. But she points out that pre-Greek is China and that it was in the Greek times that a lot of the the binary aspect of things, code, Mm -hmm. right? pluses and ones, come from a Greek tradition, which she says, look, code in that sense is its own bias. Saying that something has a binary one or zero is a bias. And then she has all these great rants about it's very male, mm. uh, all this stuff. And Confucius has this much, you know, a systems thinking. Anyway, Twain Liu, um, she's just got such a glorious brain. And she's just really fun, silly in the best way. And her her view being Eastern, and and uh, she's not always friendly to Western ethics, <laughs> but I think her view is... I'm, I'll go along with that. She's, yeah. And I have a, a whole other realm of people I could recommend as well. Okay. Um, jump back to a couple of the other questions.
0: How do you keep up with technology? Crazy question asking you that, but... You know.
1: uh, yeah, I think, you know, I subscribe to like 78 newsletters. Um, I do my best to make sure to like read The Guardian and... Uh, the economist and so like i don't just stick to like wired or Mm TechCrunch because i think you really have to ask what are the traditions uh or or trends rather that are not just quote tech trends and then i i'm blessed because i get to travel all the time with ieee and the second you travel, especially internationally, right away you start to hear, like in China, mm-hmm. you know, how advanced they are with like payments. Like you never use money in China. Yeah, it's crazy. You just, it's only mm-hmm. um, whatever we it chat. is. Yeah, uh, WeChat, we yeah, we yeah,
0: What's your perspective on failure?
1: Um, I think failure is not taking risks. I think failure, um, there's way too much pressure. I was talking to someone else about this today. It's very Western to be like, we're gonna have this meeting, here's our agenda. We're gonna accomplish this at the end of the meeting and this is gonna happen. And if that doesn't happen, it's failure, as compared to just kind of being present. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, this wonderful woman that we're working with now in the Council on Extended Intelligence named Lily, um, she's working with uh, Otto Sharmer in MIT and they have this thing called the theory of you, which is a beautiful sense of systems thinking, how to sort of be together and sort of see how solutions, bubble up to the surface so I think failure is especially if someone says if you try something based on purpose and it doesn't achieve x you fail I think the main way we fail is not to take chances and then say um can I learn or grow from this
0: mm-hmm. that's
1: interesting well
0: um I think we're definitely going to do another interview sometime but I definitely I just want to um, acknowledge you uh, John, first of all, thank you for your time and just acknowledge you for what comes across as passion, compassion, care, and um, just a massive heart. And I think it's really great to have someone on the show
1: like you. So thank you very much for your time. Well, well, th- well thank you. I feel deeply honored with this amazing list of guests that you mm-hmm. have to be here. And thank you well, for the conversation. Any of the
0: 30 you see on the list you want connected with will we'll make the connection. Wonderful. That's great. Thank you, John. Okay, that's all for now, folks. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or whatever podcast player you listen to subscribe and rate. And if you like the show, please give us a five-star rating as it helps more people discover us. If you want to learn more or have someone you'd like us to interview, just visit us at theimpossiblenetwork.com or DM us on Instagram at The Network. For now, be curious, be creative, and be open to serendipity. See you next time.